So, work and sluggardliness, laziness. All right, before we do, before I get going, I just want to have you guys read a couple of Proverbs uh, that we won't actually get to in the teaching, but I want you guys to hear. So, somebody read for me chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Volunteer? Volunteer. There's several more, so we need a couple of you to volunteer. 10, 4, and 5. Okay? Uh, one of you, 10, 26. Okay? 12, 11. Okay? 20, verse 4. Yep. And a longer one, 24, verses 30 through 34. Who's got that? Somebody? Come on! What? Bueller? Come on! I'm getting angry. 20, okay, Josiah, all right. Okay, so let's read these really loud. You guys don't have to turn to each of these, but just listen. So 10, 4, and 5. Real loud. Ten twenty six, and Josiah twenty four thirty through thirty four. 24 is after 23. Okay. If you've gotten to 25, you've gone too far. Okay. Real loud. Okay, thanks. Is there any... I hope you were listening. Is there any kind of common thread throughout these? What's generally true about someone who works hard that we just heard? They get more. They work more. So they get more. And they're not sleeping. Right. So they're receiving something, the fruits of their labor, right? If they're actually out there working. And then what, what is something true of um, a lazy man? Especially from Josiah's, but... Sleep, yeah? And then what else? I think Emma's, was that yours? What? He, uh, he's, just, he's impoverished, right? He doesn't have anything, Okay. So, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but as I was thinking about work and laziness, uh, I was reminded of the movie WALL-E. We've seen it, yes? One of my favorite Pixar movies, and as I was thinking about this this week, I'm pretty sure we will do this for film and theology some, at some point, because it's so good. But, uh, just as much as Proverbs paints a picture for us of a person who works hard and a person who doesn't, uh, the Pixar people painted that picture very clearly for us in WALL-E. So in the first like quarter, maybe a third of the movie, we just see this robot. And what's his job? To clean up trash, right? Uh, but tell me, is there anyone like coming to check on him to make sure he's getting up in the morning and doing his work? 
Is there anyone that comes at 5 o'clock when the bell rings to make sure he's gotten his work done? No. He, other than maybe like some cockroaches, he's like the only living or robotic thing left on the earth, and yet he's still going to work every day. He loves to do it because he's trying to create order out of chaos. He's trying to create beauty. When he does find beauty, beautiful things, he takes them back to his little house, and he, he loves to work. He's a hard worker. And then we see the people in the movie, right? What, what's something true about the people? Yeah. Yeah, they're like as couch potato as you, as you can get. Yeah. Yeah, they're really fat. They have to have everything like brought to them. They're lazy, right? Uh, the only way for the plot to kind of move forward out of their laziness is for one of the guys to actually get out of his little moving couch and stand up and do something, right? Uh, it's only when they do something does stuff actually begin to happen in the plot. So there's two pictures in Wally, and then Solomon throughout the Proverbs gives us two pictures of laziness, sluggardliness, and a hard worker. So to think about how we're going to do that. We're going to try to answer three questions today. What does God think about work? And how do we wrongly think about work? And then how should we think about work? So first of all, how does God think about work? Maybe you guys don't do this often, but parents, when you guys meet somebody new and you're in this like small talk conversation, what's the first question that you ask them? Hi, my name is Gary. Yeah. After like, what's your name? The first thing that you ask, nearly always, is, hey, what do you do? Because rightly or wrongly, uh, we tend to get a lot of identity in what we do. I say that wrongly because we can place too much identity in our jobs and what we do. But I think I say that rightly because God has called us to work. He's created us not to just be, but to do. So how do we know that? Well, we can look at Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to try to go through this really quickly so we can get back to the Proverbs. But what's, what's Genesis 1-1 say? If, we were, if you had never, ever read the Bible and don't know anything about it or about God, and you opened up to the first verse of the first book, and you read, what is the first thing that we learn about God, really? Other than he's like bigger than everything, and he, he is huge enough to make all this, what is he, what's the first thing that we see him? He does, right? He makes, he creates, he's working, he sends his spirit to hover above the waters and then to create, to make, to do. And then in chapter 27 of chapter 1, we learn that we are created in his image. And this means a whole lot of things. We've talked about being created in God's image and film and theology times and stuff like that. And, and this means a lot, but I think at its base, we can say that we are made to look and act like God. And so if we are made to act like God, part of, the, part of God's image is that we are to work like him. Why? Because work is God-like. So we are made to work because it's God-like. It's good. And then the very next verse after we find out that we're created in his image, in verse 28, he tells Adam, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over it. So he tells them, he calls them not to just be and sit around in the garden, 
drinking tea and eating grapes, right? He calls them to go do, to, to fill the earth, subdue it. We might even say form the earth and fill the earth. Form it with beauty, form like order, and then fill it with more beauty. And reminder, this is all before the fall. This is all before Genesis 3. This is before sin. Work is good because God does it himself and because he calls us to it. We often tend to think about work being as like, well, i got to go to work today. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam and Eve, for all that sin, right? No, work is good uh, before the fall. And work is good, like I said, because God calls us to it. Uh, some of the Reformation guys, Protestant Reformation, especially Martin Luther, wrote about work a lot. And he used the word, he didn't use the words work or job. Do you know what word, word he used, typically used to describe your job? It's a word we still use, vocation. And does any of you, do you have any, we have any classical students out there, any of you taking Latin? All right, what, let's help define this word. What would vocation mean? What's vox or, hold on, yeah, you know? What? Okay, what does it mean? Yeah, but it's more than that. It's not just what you do. And it's not the opposite of vacation. You're cl- yeah. Are you cheating? What? No, stop. Latin here. No, I don't want a Webster's definition. I want Latin. What, what is vox or voc, voc? Okay. Oh, like, what's, what's where we get our word voice from, right? Vox. Uh, and so, vocation means a calling, a calling by God. And that's why Luther would say it's a calling by God. God has called you to this place of work. You don't just kind of end up there, and that's just kind of what you do. So, as I was thinking this week about some of you and your parents, listen to some of these vocations or callings that I came up with. We have represented in this room or through, indirectly through your families, we have scientists, financial advisors, business owners and entrepreneurs, pilots, full-time stay-at-home moms, teachers, restaurant and food service workers, carpenters, musicians, engineers, home builders, those in full-time ministry, salesmen, mechanics, stylists, lawyers, realtors. That's amazing. All just represented in our families in this youth ministry. That's incredible. And it's not just that these are these jobs that people go to, these are vocations in which God has called all of our families to bring order to this earth and fill it with beauty. No matter what your job, your parents or you might have, this is what they're doing. They are bringing order to chaos and they're filling the earth in some way with beauty or filling it with God's glory. That's incredible. So that's why Luther would say there are no, like, spiritual levels of work. There's not a varsity and a JV level of work. When I was growing up, I tended to think if the only way that I might bring glory to God is if I somehow got into missions or full-time ministry, right? And we tend to think of that, right? Like, somehow, Pastor Ryan Kelly brings more glory to God than other jobs, right? But Luther says, no way. Pastor Ryan has been called to 
shepherd and teach this church, and your parents have been called to bring glory to God in other ways. And that's good and great. There's an author in, the, in England in the 40s and 50s, Dorothy Sayers. She says, the only Christian work, the only Christian work is good work well done. So when you do your job or your work excellently, that's a Christian work. Okay? So, we need to keep going. We've spent too much time in Genesis. Um, I'll also say, just real quick, that work is good in Genesis because it is also Adam's form of worship. When God says in Genesis 2, the Lord took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, that work word we see interchangeably throughout the Old Testament is either meaning work or worship. So Adam brings worship to God when he works in the Garden. Okay, So Adam feels God's pleasure when he works in the garden. So what the heck, Nathan, you guys might be saying. This is a sermon for my parents, but it's not a sermon for me. I don't have a job, uh, and even if I did, I thought we were looking at Proverbs. What the heck is going on? Great points you, might, you, 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 you just brought up. Um, but before we got to Proverbs, I wanted to establish a theology of work, what God thinks about it, that it is good. It's not a result of sin, a result of, of the fall. But I also, maybe more importantly, wanted to establish for you that while you might not have a job that you get a paycheck from, you do have several vocations. You do have several callings. One of those, listen to this. All of you are members of little organizations all over the city. And in these organizations, this organization that you happen to be a part of, you can, or are able to bring order out of chaos. You are able to, within this organization, uh, create beauty, contributing to the good of society. And in this organization, you individually play a very important and functioning role. You know, you know what this organization might be? Your family. You have a calling and a vocation to function in your family. You also are all students. This isn't just, God hasn't just ordained this time of schooling for you guys uh, to just be like just a couple years of time wasting until you can get to your real calling or your real job, your real vocation. This is the vocation that God has called you to right now. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, this is a time of learning and preparation, yes, and it's, but it's also a time to figure out your talents, your gifts, your interests, where God may be calling you to ultimately in a career. Okay, so that's how God thinks about work, uh, that it's good and that he's called us to it. So how do we wrongly think about work? Flip over to Proverbs 26. The, look at verse thir- verses 13 through 16. Most of you there? Okay, listen to this. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on its bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So, we see, we're going to see quite a bit that the sluggard, this true of the sluggard, but primarily I want us to see that the sluggard sees work as bad to be avoided, and he certainly doesn't see it as a calling. So, 
a few of the traits of the sluggard. What, what, is, what is Solomon saying in verse 13? What, what is the sluggard saying? There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Why is he saying this? Yeah, or you're crazy if you're asking me to get, leave this house and go do something. There's a lion out there who's going to eat me, right? Is there really a, probably a lion in the streets? Probably not. So he's either making up excuses just to get out of it, or he's like totally delusional and like tricking himself into thinking that there is so he doesn't have to get out of bed and go do something. Uh, we may not use, I, I really hope that you've never used the lion excuse. Like if your parents asked you to get up and go mow the lawn, you say, I can't, there's, there's a lion out there. Uh, I hope you've never used that. Probably won't go over very well. Uh, but we do make a whole host of other excuses. And I read one really helpful author uh, this week who said the, most, the two primary excuses we give is first the exception excuse. The exception excuse goes like this. I'm special and not like the others. Because I'm wise and reasonable, I see a bigger picture than the people who make the rule. In my judgment, the rules aren't exactly fair, so I think I'll just change them a little as they apply to myself and not really tell anybody. So the exception rule plays out like this for us, where we say, yeah, somebody should clean up my room. Somebody should do the laundry in this house. Somebody should mow the lawn or clean the garage. But not me, right? Why? Because I'm special, right? I am the center of this house, and that work ought to get done, but I ain't going to do it, right? You other people, you unspecial people should do it. And since I'm special, I can just stay in my room and play video games or watch TV or just stay on Facebook all day long while you people, the unspecial ones, get the work done, right? Or I agree like philosophically, maybe even theologically, that people shouldn't cheat on a test. I, that's probably true, but I'm special. You know, I, I had a really busy week, and I didn't have, really have time to study this week. So since I'm special, I'll go ahead and cheat. Uh, or I know this algebra teacher has put in a lot of work, and God has called me to be here to do this work hard, but I stayed up real late last night, so I'm going to set up the folder and take a snooze, right? Because I'm special. We do that, right? The other really primary excuse that we use, in addition to the exception excuse, is the lowest common denominator excuse, which is essentially the exact opposite of the exception excuse. It says, everyone else is taking it slow. Everyone else is lazy. Why not me too? Right? I'm justified in being lazy because everyone else is. So we say, look, mom. None of my other friends have to do their own laundry or clean up the room. They do it for them. So I'm not going to do that. Right? Or none of my parents, none of my friends' parents care if they get good grades. So I'm just going to get a C and move on to the next semester. Right? All my friends cheat on the test. They cut corners here or there. They lied here or there. So I will too because they're lazy. Everyone else is lazy around me. Why should I do any differently? Right? And we do that. I do that all the time. I can make excuses for not doing work. Just like the sluggard who says there's a lion in the road. So the first, the sluggard makes excuses. And second, he shows no initiative. He's like a door just swinging back and forth on its hinges. I think the picture Solomon might be painting here is 
he's in his bed, and he's just rolling over, over and over and over, never getting out of bed. And maybe he does occasionally get out of bed, but he doesn't move anywhere, like a door doing the same thing over and over and over. You may be caught in doing the same unproductive, uncreative, simple activities day after day, week after week, and year after year. And you look back when you graduated high school and you're essentially the same person you were in the seventh grade because you've just, you haven't done anything. You haven't learned anything, created anything. Uh, you aren't growing in wisdom. So, just think about it. In the past year, have you grown in creativity, in production, in serving and loving others, in wisdom, in knowledge about stuff? I'm not even talking about like biblical knowledge. Yeah, that, yes, that certainly should be a goal. But have you just like learned more about the world around you? Or are you like a door, just kind of hanging out? The difference between you and the door, though, is that the door is actually fulfilling God's calling on its life, right? <laughs> it, God has called it to swing back and forth, and it feels God's pleasure as it does that. Uh, but you certainly do not, if that's all you're doing. So the third trait we see, he makes excuses and he lacks in- initiative, is that he consistently fails to complete his tasks. Look at this. This is a pathetic pathetic picture that Solomon gives us in verse 15. The sluggard, he's hanging out on the couch with his feet up with a bowl of something. I don't know. Maybe popcorn or something. And he puts his hand in the popcorn and he either falls asleep or he's like, ah, it's not worth it for me to bring my hand up. That's too much work. Right? He can't even get the food to his mouth. And he can't complete the tasks that he starts. He's distracted, or he's lazy. Maybe he's I'm reminded of this, of just procrastinating. He can't get his jobs done. Uh, and so my question is, if, if you've started a task, how quickly are you distracted? Like Facebook, TV, video games, whatever. Do you finish what you started? And this is me too. Kayla, do you remember last week I... <laughs> she, she knows exactly what I'm going to say <laughs> uh, before I even asked her. Uh, I think it was a Thursday afternoon, and uh, I just came over and dropped a note on her desk and walked back to my desk, and what did it say? Something, paraphrase it. Yeah, I, like, oh, I should have been writing a sermon or reading a book or preparing in some way, and I just didn't want to a day. And so one of the ways I procrastinated was to write a funny note to Kayla and, Walk by and throw her a note that said, I am lacking all motivation <laughs> right now. Uh, but this is all of us, right? We can procrastinate and not be motivated, self-motivated to finish the tasks that we've started. Uh, so these are, the ta- or these are the traits that we see of the sluggard here. But again, the sluggard, the reason he does these things and makes these excuses is because he doesn't see his work as good, as inherently good ordained by God as good, and he doesn't see the work that he's been called to as exactly that, a calling, called by God to do these things. He sees his work or his job as a necessary evil, right? And we all know these people, right? And maybe it's some of you. 
the person who only goes to work, he drags himself out of bed just to get a paycheck to make it to the weekend, to do the stuff that he actually wants to do. He works as a necessary evil to live, right? He doesn't see it as good. So do you see your callings as family members, as students? Maybe you actually do have a job that you're getting paid for. Do you see these things as necessary evils that you're just biding your time for like six more months till I graduate high school and I'm out of my parents' house? Or some of you, six more years. It'll never get here, right? This is a necessary evil that I just have to endure until I can really live my life. Or that you're just getting just good enough grades to make it until you can get to college and then life really begins. These are just necessary evils that you just have to endure for a little bit until you can really live. If that's the case, you don't see where you are as being called there by God. Luther and the Reformers taught this notion of, it's really great, of blooming where you've been planted. So Luther would say, wherever God has planted you as a mid-high student or as a son or daughter or as working to be paid for, wherever you've been planted, bloom there. Bring God glory there. Whatever you do, do it with excellence. I love this quote, Martin Luther King Jr., not Martin Luther, but Martin Luther King Jr. said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep the streets even as Michelangelo painted or as Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. That's great. If you died today, would we write on your tombstone, here lies a son or a daughter who worked with excellence. He worked hard to serve his family and those around him. She worked to learn in her studies in excellence to prepare for a career of God-glorifying calling. He didn't worship his work, but he certainly worshiped God in his work. Do we say that about you? If not, you don't see where you are right now, where you've been planted as a calling by God to bring him glory, to bloom there. So that's how we wrongly think about work. We think it's bad and necessary evil, something that we just have to endure so that we can really live. But how should we think about work? I've already tipped my hand a little bit, this blooming where you've been planted thing, but flip over back in the book to chapter 6. Just like in Wally, we had a picture of lazy humans. We also had a picture of Wally. Uh, and Solomon gives us a similar example here. In 6.6, 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways, and be wise. So, Rachel, let's consider the ant's ways. Maybe? Just play it. We have sound? All right. Well, 
the amount of cement required is extraordinary. For three days they kept pouring until 10 tons of cement had disappeared down the tubes. I didn't do those, by the way. Sorry about that. Yeah. After a month, they begin the excavation, led by Professor Louise Fortune. It takes weeks to uncover the secret megalopolis of the ants. Let's kill it. Is that not cool? I think that's amazing. And uh, I, I'm in disagreement with the narrator where he said uh, it looks like a single architect has designed this. Of course, that's not true. I, I think that is amazing. And I think it is true that God has called these ants to build this amazing structure. And I think God I've got a bigger picture of my God who gets glory from an ant colony. That's incredible. That's great. So, back to chapter 6. Go to the ant, O slugger. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Let's stop there. So, if... Any of what we talked about in chapter 26 rings true to you. As a, if you're a sluggard in some ways, if you 
make excuses, if you don't self-initiate, if you don't finish what you start. I'm assuming some of that might echo true for you. If you are a sluggard in some ways, Solomon is saying, let's look at the ant. Consider her ways. Observe her and then change. So first, we see unlike the sluggard who never self-initiates, they are self-initiators and self-disciplined. They don't show up late or have to take a 15-minute break once every hour, right? And they don't, like Wally, have to have uh, a chief, an officer, or ruler coming over them to make sure that they're getting their work done. They don't need their mom or dad to come in 20 times every morning begging them to get out of bed to go to work. They don't need to come to church every now and then and hear a sermon urging them to excellence in their work. They just know what their calling is and they do it. Just like Wally, this is great. They're self-disciplined. They, Wally only works for bringing beauty to the world, bringing order out of chaos, and he does it and does it well. And we also see that they're hard workers. All right, so you have that picture? This is a real picture. It's not Photoshopped. I did a lot of research to make sure that this was not a Photoshop. But you can see this is a 500 milligrams, it says, uh, which is about 100 times their own body weight. That's amazing. That's like you lifting what? 10,000 pounds? If you're 100 pounds, whatever. Uh, that's incredible. So when you're at a hot picnic complaining about the heat and I wish we could just go home, you know what the ants are doing? They're just grabbing the Fritos and Oreos and carrying them off, right? And they are not complaining. They are working all the time, working hard, finishing what they're starting, working, working, working. They also see, we see that they're, they understand the future and they're preparing accordingly. They know that, when's the last time you guys have seen an ant? It's been a couple months, right? And in the springtime, you'll see a lot of them. But where are they now? They're under the ground. And how are they staying alive under the ground? Because they worked all spring and summer and fall to prepare for the winter, right? They don't waste their weeks in procrastination. Yeah? I'll get there. I'll get there, okay? Uh, they're working accordingly, though. They don't find themselves procrastinating. And then they feel the first snowflake, and they're like, oh, no, what do I do? I've got to go grab a bunch of stuff for the winter, right? They're not caught unaware. They're working hard to prepare. And then, as you just said, we don't see it in the text here, but they're unselfish, and they work for the good of the colony. The way an ant colony works are, some stay at the bed, we'll get back to them, but they send out these scouts that go out everywhere. And what happens when a scout finds a piece of sugar or a crumb off of a Frito? Do you know what he does? Yeah, he, he just turns an about face from that Frito, and he makes a beeline back to the colony. And what he's done is, is left a line of little pheromones, of little smell stuff. That the other ants, when he gets back to the colony, he like, like blows his trumpet, and like everybody like runs behind him following that pheromone trail, and they, they're hoping to find more Fritos, right? 
that would be the jackpot. And you know you've seen them, right? The line of ants on the street or the sidewalk. And if you are especially cruel, you can uh, rub your thumb over their line. And then they all just like crash into each other, right? They're following this trail this, of the smell. So these scouts are out working hard trying to find food. Then these worker ants are working hard bringing it back. And then there are some that never even leave the bed, leave the colony. They're doing what we just watched. They're building, burrowing. There's the queen ant who's there to produce more ants. And there are some of these dudes that just, that's all their job is too, is to keep <laughs> populating the queen ant. That's their job, right? Uh, and so, look, some of them, they, they don't get any glory, right? They don't get to run out and grab the Fritos. They're just working hard in the dark. But they are working unselfishly for the good of the colony. So is this you? Are you working unselfishly for others? Are you self-initiating, disciplined, working hard? Or are you back to the sluggard? Verse 9. Solomon says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You're just lying there, again, like a door on its hinge, just rolling back and forth. And finally, after you wake up, you finally open your eyes, but then you say, you know what? I'm still pretty tired, even though I just slept for ten and a half hours. So... I'm just going to fold my hands on my chest and just rest a little bit because I'm still not rested. Right? And then after you rest for an hour with your hands folded on your chest, now you're tired again from resting. So I'm just going to go back to sleep. How long will you lay there, O sluggard? Is what Psalm is saying. Get up. Do something. He's saying an insect, a little like two millimeter insect, is living out his calling by God more faithfully and obediently than you. That should be a slap in the face. And I think that's why another reason why the Pixar guys made a robot, like a robot, an ant, is living out his calling more faithfully than you. Get up! Your laziness, my laziness, is ignoring or refusing to echo this God goodness of working, that God works and He's called us to it. We're supposed to be like that. We're supposed to want that. And we're suppressing it. Because you know what all laziness is? Laziness is just self-love, right? I'm only going to get up and work if it's convenient for me or if I'm going to get something good out of it. Like if my parents are going to give me a little extra cash for me to do this work or what you name it, right? It's just laziness is self-love. And God is calling us out of self-love and love for him and love for others. So get up and do something, Solomon says. Do your schoolwork with excellence, integrity, without procrastination. Go serve your mom and do the laundry or vacuum the house. Selflessly loving others. And certainly, God's commanded you to honor your parents. This is one of your most incredible callings for a while is to live with honor for your parents as you're living in their home. Read a book. Read your Bible. Put the video game controller down. Just go outside and and enjoy God's glory and what he's created. And if you're old enough and your parents allow it, go get a job. 
Actually, bring order and beauty, fill the earth with beauty and service to others. That's good. God has called you to that. It's good. It's before the fall. It's before sin. But, as I've hopefully reminded you and pound this in your head, not only since I've been here since July, but certainly in the last three weeks, this cannot be the ultimate thing. Working doesn't, we don't work hard so that God might approve us. We don't work more excellently so God might think we are excellent, right? We are anything but excellent. We are sluggards who make excuses. We don't finish what we start. We're not disciplined. We are full of sin. And yet, we trust in the work of someone else. The reason we can work excellently is because we realize, if we're believers in Christ, that His work has already been credited to us. So no matter how excellently we work, we cannot add to His already most excellent work. And then when we trust and delight in that, then we say, God, what a good God. Might I love you and find pleasure in my work, uh, glorying and worshiping in you, and might I selflessly love others because you have selflessly loved me. Because this one, this Christ, he was self-disciplined. He, we see him removing himself in the morning and in the evenings to pray for his work and ministry, for God's glory and for his disciples. He self-initiated. He didn't need his disciples to every now and then come give him a pep talk. Peter doesn't come in and say, all right, Jesus, let's go, buddy. Let's do, let's do some ministry today. No, he's doing it. He's disciplined. He worked hard for God's glory other than his own. He understood the future and prepared accordingly to fulfill his purpose, his calling. He unselfishly worked for the good of the colony rather than himself, right? He laid down his own interest, desires in his life for the colony, for his people. When we understand and trust in his work rather than our own, like I said, a work that we cannot add to, then God changes our heart where we begin to delight in working excellently, feeling God's pleasure in our work, but not his approval, right? Like I said, with your headstone, if you were to die today, I hope that what we might say about you is that you didn't worship your work, but you worshiped God in your work. And again, in your vocation, in your calling. As a calling, as, as a son or a daughter, as a student, as an athlete, as a job you're paid for, whatever God has called you to, wherever he has planted you, bloom with excellence. Because God has given you already an excellent work on your behalf. That's good news. Amen?